Well, dear friend, today, if right now, if right this moment, you had to stand before God at the final judgment, on that day when John saw a great white throne and the face of him that sat upon the throne, it was a face from whom even heaven and earth fled away and For those standing in front of the throne, there was no place to hide. If you had to stand there right now, this moment, at the final judgment, what would be your hope? Would you say one thing about your righteousness? Um, God, you should consider how righteous I am. Would you have anything to say about your good works that you would make an appeal to that before God? Well, if you're a true believer in Christ... Your only hope would be this, that Jesus Christ died for me. Your only hope would be like the songwriter. In my hand, no price I bring. Simply to the cross, I cling. This is justification by faith alone. This is the true gospel. And this is the clear teaching of Holy Scripture that we believe and confess. And as Thomas Watson put it, justification is the very hinge and pillar of of Christianity. God throughout the Holy Scriptures has taught us to reject all notions of human merit, human works in our salvation, whether that's a plain uh, salvation by works or whether it's salvation by faith in Christ, but adding our works to that so that it's faith and works. If we add any human works into our justification, We've destroyed the gospel, and Scripture cannot be any plainer about this. Galatians 2.16, Paul summarizes it this way, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. So to all of you who are in Christ, God has so worked in your heart and mind through the preaching of the law and gospel by His Spirit that you've come to see yourself as nothing but a hell-worthy sinner, guilty before the holy God of glory, deserving nothing but eternal judgment. And you know that there's nothing you can do to save yourself, and you have renounced all self-righteousness, and you, from the bottom of your heart, can say with Apostle Paul, Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, as he said in Philippians 3. This is the true gospel. It's justification by faith alone in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, and for the glory of God alone. Along with Paul, you've taken all your good works, anything that you would have used to try to gain merit with God You've counted them all but dung, but rubbish. You've trashed them. You've seen them as just part of the sewer of unworthy merits and filthy rags of your own righteousness considered in yourself. You've renounced these things. You've embraced Jesus Christ alone. You've trusted in Him and His death and resurrection and His 
present intercession for you, haven't you, dear believer? Isn't that, isn't that what you believe and confess? We know this. We believe it. We confess it. So I want to know when we're reading the Psalms, when we're singing the Psalms, why can some Psalms sometimes strike us as sounding self-righteous when we, when we read them? Like in Psalm 7-8 where the psalmist David prays, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity that is within me. Have you ever been reading or singing a psalm like that and you pause and you think, ooh, I don't know if I can, I, I don't know if I can say that about myself. I don't know if I could really sing that about me. I don't know if I can read that as if that applies to me. Judge me according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. It's not just Psalm 7. There's language like this all over the Psalms. And when we sing the 26th Psalm, we sing these words in the book of Psalms for worship. Lord, vindicate me. I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord. I've been unwavering. We might feel uncomfortable with language like that. I can't sing or pray that, we might say. I have walked in my integrity. I have been unwavering. I haven't drifted. I haven't wavered. I've been stable in my trust in the Lord without wavering. You might even think, well, maybe David could sing that about himself, but I can't. Look at my sins just from this past week. I lost my temper with my spouse. I lost my temper with my kids. I had a bad attitude towards my boss. I said things I shouldn't have. I thought things that were sinful, sinful motivations, sinful desires. I had to confess sin to God every day of my life. Throughout the day, I had to repent of sin. How could I sing, I have walked in my integrity and I've been unwavering? Well, we can have this struggle. And we can ask, well, why do some of the Psalms sound at first self-righteous when we hear this language? It doesn't help that some of us came from a background of certain forms of dispensationalism that actually said, well, the reason it sounds that way is because it is that way. Uh, Old Testament believers were saved in a different way than we are saved. We're saved by grace through faith. They were saved through partly works. Some of us grew up hearing things like that, and that doesn't help anything. It says, well, these psalms actually are self-righteous, but we know this can't be. We know better. God in his mercy through the robust teaching of the Reformed faith has made us to realize that we're united with our dear old covenant brothers and sisters because the way they were saved was by faith alone in Christ alone, through God's grace alone, and the exact way that we're saved. So, if this is the case, how are we to understand the language of such psalms? And we need, to, we need to think through this and wrestle with this. If we're going to sing the Psalms as God commands us to in Colossians and elsewhere under the New Covenant, if we're going to pray the Psalms as did our Lord Jesus, as it was His inspired prayer book, if we're going to seek to live by the precepts and hope and the promises contained in the Psalms, since they are God's Word, we need to be able to answer this question about what do we make of these kinds of psalms. 
Not only that, but today in the Reformed faith, we face dangerous errors, soul-threatening errors about justification that we actually bump up against sometimes under those who fly the banner of Reformed, and they are redefining and they're adding works to faith in our justification. And we need to beware of it, and we need to hold fast to the pure gospel So we ask the question, what do we make of these psalms? With this in mind, I want to preach on this subject, how to read, quote, and this is a big quote, this is in quotation, self-righteous, quote, self-righteous psalms. How to read seemingly self-righteous psalms. We'll consider it in two basic thoughts. First of all, There are no self-righteous psalms. Why do I say this? Well, because the psalms themselves teach us that we cannot be justified by keeping God's law. The psalms themselves teach it. We know that God's good and holy law cannot save us, and as long as we are under the law and not in Christ, the law does absolutely nothing but condemn us. It cannot help us. It cannot save us. It's like the, it's like the state trooper. When you're doing 55 and a 25 and he pulls you over and gives you a ticket, he's not going to go to the court and pay for that ticket. He can't help you in that way. He can't expunge your record and take that off. No, he just shows you what you were doing wrong and penalizes you for it. That's the law. The law is good and holy, but it was not given to save. It never has saved anyone because we've all broken it. We're born under the curse of this broken law. This is what we've heard from Paul in this reading in Romans chapter 3, where Paul is unleashing a total barrage, a war barrage against human self-righteousness. We read here in Romans 3 where Paul is hammering home this point that all men, Jew and Gentile, are sinners desperately in need of God's grace in Christ and there is no other way of salvation. And we're justified by faith alone apart from works. What Paul is doing here in Romans 3 spiritually is akin to what our allied troops did Militarily on D-Day, as they were there in France on the beach at Normandy and Omaha Beach, and the Nazis had built solid, strong fortifications, concrete fortifications all along the shoreline there, and the Allied troops went in, and they were making their land invasion, and the Nazis from those fortifications were just mowing them down with their machine guns and their artillery, and our guys didn't stand a chance. Well, when that started happening, there were two battleships, the USS Texas and the USS Arkansas, that moved in as close as they could to Omaha Beach, and they brought out what they called the big guns, 16-inch guns that shot rounds that weighed over 2,000 pounds each, and they started pummeling, and they started pounding the Nazi fortifications, and they softened them up so much that our boys were able to launch in and, and invade and make their advance and make a beachhead. Well, Paul knows if he is going to preach the true gospel of Christ, he's got to smash down every 
fortification, every stronghold of human self-righteousness. And that's exactly what he's doing in passages like this. He's pounding and smashing all of our confidence in our self-righteous works to earn favor with God. Here he launches the longest chain fire volley of Old Testament scripture quotations in the entire New Testament. We just read it in Romans 3. He does this to prove that all people, Jew and Gentile, by nature are absolutely sinful. Where does Paul get his ammo to do this? Well, he gets it all from the Psalms, or mostly from the Psalms. He quotes from five to six different Psalms, ranging from Psalm 5 at the beginning of the Psalter all the way to Psalm 140 near the end of the Psalter. You can hear him as he, shot, as, as he fires shot after shot. Verse 9, here he grabs hold of the Psalms and begins to fire. As he says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks, that they're all under sin, as it is written. Written where, Paul? Where is it written that this is the case? Well, Psalms 14 and Psalms 53 He grabs a hold of those two psalms for ammo, and he says, you think by your good works you can earn favor with God and merit God's forgiveness? Well, hear this, and he gives them these psalms. In verse 10, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, there's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. Verse 12, they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Then Paul says, I'll fire off Psalm 5, verse 13, Romans 3, 13. Their throat is an open tomb with their tongues. They have practiced deceit. Next, he launches Psalm 140. In verse 13, the poison of asps is under their lips. Then he gives them Psalm 10 and verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Then the apostle, as it were, locks and loads the 36th Psalm in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this barrage from the Psalms has so devastated, so smashed and destroyed every human fortification of self-righteousness. And it's the Psalms that Paul quotes to do it. So this lets us know the Psalms themselves never preach any notion of human self-righteousness and salvation by it. Now listen to Paul's conclusion. This is the aftermath. This is is the result of all he just said. This is the result of this barrage from the Psalms. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You could imagine the self-righteous man, as were the self-righteous Pharisees of his day, and the Judaizers standing there, running their mouth, blah, 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 how righteous I am, blah, blah, talking about their good works. And after this barrage is unleashed, Paul says the only thing you have to do is to shut your mouth and hang your head in shame because there are none righteous, no, not one. He's silencing their self-righteousness so he can 
preach the gospel to them, unless they see their own sinfulness and their desperate need of Christ, they'll never see their need of him in the gospel, and they'll never lay hold of him by faith. And as we look at these comments, Paul's comments on the Psalms, remember the analogy of Scripture. Since the Bible's ultimate author is God, and he breathes and inspires these scriptures. He, he breathed them through holy men of old, we know. And so the ultimate author of scripture is God. Then every part of the Bible perfectly agrees with every other part of the Bible. And since holy scripture is God breathed and infallible, no inspired writer ever contradicts another writer. So if we read something in the psalmist David that sounds like it doesn't set well, with Paul, it sounds contradictory to Paul. We misread it. We misheard it. So in Romans 3, Paul has used the Psalms rightly interpreted to demolish all strongholds of human self-righteousness. He's established a gospel beachhead, but he doesn't stop there. It's not just that the Psalms teach us that we can't be justified by keeping the law they also clearly teach justification by faith alone. They don't just tear down our self-righteousness. They point us to Jesus Christ, and they preach the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's all throughout the Psalms. Just like the Allied troops, after they smashed those Nazi fortifications, they went on to build their own fortifications and to advance and set up forward operating bases. Paul here is constructing one of the strongest passages in the whole Bible on justification by faith alone. And in doing this, he calls in two support units. He calls in two men for backup. One is Abraham and one is the psalmist David. He uses these two men to prove his doctrine, showing that they were both saved by justification. Or they were both rather, justified by faith alone. Paul says so in Romans 4, in the next passage, after what we have read, verses 4 to 8, he's commenting on Psalm 32, and when he wants to build the doctrine of justification by faith, where does he go? He goes to the Psalms, Psalm 32, now to him who works, or, or rather, uh, Romans 4, verse 4, commenting on Psalm 32, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are all those whose lawless, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So according to Apostle Paul and his inspired apostolic commentary on Psalm 32, and since it's infallible, it cannot err. When Paul, under inspiration, comments on Old Testament Scripture, it cannot be an error. And when he does, when he comments on it, He's teaching that David teaches in the 32nd Psalm that salvation is the gift of God's free grace whereby he forgives and covers all our sin and will not count it against us. And this we know and he expounds is all because of the perfect righteousness of Christ credited 
to our account. So in other words, according to Paul, David taught what we call today the Reformation doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. He and all Old Testament saints were saved this way, the same way that we're saved. This is exactly what we confess in our confession, chapter 11, that the justification of believers under the Old Testament was in all respects one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. I wonder, dear friend, here today, as we've surveyed Paul's teaching here in, in Romans 3, we've seen his barrage smashing down human self-righteousness and showing them their need of Christ and, and showing them the great hope that they can be justified by faith alone. Nothing that you have to do, no, no work that you have to do, but simply trusting in Christ and you'll be pardoned and forgiven and credited with his perfect righteousness. I wonder, has God worked this in your heart? Has God, by the preaching of his law, smashed down all your self-confidence? Are you still standing there running your mouth, blah, 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 about who you are, what you've done, what you want to do, what you want to live for? Are you still running your mouth about reasons that you shouldn't come to Jesus Christ or reasons that you're better than the next person or better than that person, maybe even... Better than Christians you know. Oh, dear friend, if God leaves you in your, to your own devices, if God leaves you to your own ways, you'll keep running your mouth like that all the way into eternal condemnation. But oh, may God open your eyes. May God in His grace and mercy reveal to you this day the sinner that you are in your desperate need of Christ and the great hope that there is in Him. May God do this work in you. Something you can't do for yourself. But you are responsible to hear this message, to repent, to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God this day and to trust in Jesus Christ alone as your righteousness. So we've seen that in the Psalms, far from preaching any notion of self-righteousness, when Paul would go to destroy human self-righteousness, he goes to the Psalms to do it. He uses Psalms as his ammo. When Paul wants to construct an argument for justification by faith alone in Christ alone, he goes to the Psalms and uses that as his building materials. And he calls in the psalmist David as half of his backup to do it. Abraham is the other half. And we remember that this is infallible, inspired commentary our interpretation is liable to error. We can make wrong interpretations of Scripture. But when an inspired writer of Scripture interprets Scripture, it's an infallible interpretation. This cannot be argued with. Nobody can go to Psalms and say, oh, uh, David actually meant something else. No, he meant what Paul says he meant because Paul rightly understood and he told us so under inspiration. So we've seen that there are no self-righteous psalms and that the psalms teach justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And now in light of this, what are we to make and how are we to read psalms that, that can sound self-righteousness? We know they're not. Paul told us so. But then what are we to make of them? Well, a few things to help you when you're reading the psalms and you read psalms like this. First of all, consider the psalmist's situation. 
Consider their situation at the time. Many times the psalmist is writing during an unusual circumstance. And this circumstance sets the context for what he's saying. In Psalm 7 that we read where the psalmist says, Judge me according to my righteousness and according to the integrity within me. The context is that his lion-like enemies are attacking him. They are slandering him. They're saying things about him that are not true. And David is simply saying here, I'm not guilty of the things my enemies are accusing me of. And he's appealing to God that God knows his innocence in this specific matter. He's not saying, Lord, I'm righteous enough in myself to earn your favor. But rather, the psalmist is saying, Lord, you know I'm not guilty of this thing the enemies of mine are saying I'm guilty of. And I'm looking to you to clear my innocent name in this matter. And this is right for us as Christians when we're wrongfully accused. It is in keeping with the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness, the converse of which is that we are to speak in such a way to defend our neighbor's good name. And if we are wrongfully slandered, then we are to speak the truth in love. This is all the psalmist is doing here. In these specific situations, He may be speaking of a specific limited time frame, like in the 26th Psalm that we mentioned earlier. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I also have trusted in the Lord. You can translate it, I've been unwavering. The context here is not that he's making a universal claim. He's not saying, I've never done anything in my life except walk in my integrity. I've never wavered. I've never slipped my life. That's not what the psalmist is saying. We read elsewhere in the same psalmist writing, he's crying out to God for forgiveness of sin. David couldn't have sung this song on the day that he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He couldn't have said in this context, vindicate me, Lord, for I've walked in my integrity. I've not wavered. He couldn't. There were certain times in a certain context he could say that, but not universally. He's not making a universal claim. And as it is with us, so it was with old covenant believers, dear Christian. We wish that we did not sin. We wish we were already glorified and perfected. But we are still being sanctified. We still sin in this life. Never be totally without sin in this life. This is the situation of the psalmist. Yes, the overall big picture of his life is he desires To obey God, not rebel against God. To serve God, not to turn away from God. That's the big picture. It's the situation in this context here. That doesn't mean that he's without sin. Another consideration is not just the situation at the time, but you can also consider the context within the Psalms. If you read a Psalm that sounds self-righteous, think about its context within the Psalms themselves. If you look before that psalm or after that psalm, you'll find often the same psalmist confessing his sin and crying to God for forgiveness. He knows he's a sinner. He knows that he's justified only by God's grace in Christ, by faith alone. Such as in Psalm 26 that we just read from where he's saying, I've walked in my integrity. He also says in that same 
psalm, or, or, or rather the psalm before it, Psalm 25. He's crying out, Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Also in the 25th Psalm, he cries out to the Lord, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. So when we consider the context within the Psalms, look at the Psalms before it and the Psalms after it, you'll be able to make better sense of what he's saying, for instance, here in the 26th Psalm. He's not not claiming self-righteousness. So we've seen that we must consider the psalmist's situation, the psalm's context within the psalms, and a third and the ultimate thing to help you in reading the psalms rightly is above all to consider Jesus Christ. David has already said in the 14th psalm, there's none righteous, not even one. Somebody might ask, well, if there's none righteous then why does the book of Psalms say say so, there's none righteous, yet it mentions the righteous scores and scores of times? The very first Psalm. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, etc. It's describing the righteous man over and over, scores and scores of times throughout the Psalms. It talks about these people who are called the righteous, but it said there are none righteous, no, not one. Is that double speak? Well, if it weren't for the gospel of Christ, yes, it would be doublespeak and there couldn't be any righteous. But the psalmist tells us there are none righteous, but then he talks about the righteous all the time only because of this. This is the only way that can be true. It's because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. In ourselves, there are none righteous, no, not one. But because Christ lived and died in the place of guilty sinners, for those who are in Christ by faith, we are accounted righteous by God and reckoned among the righteous, as we confess, only for the righteousness of Christ. This is why God accepts us and reckons us among the righteous. So dear Christian, This moment and every moment, you really are united to Christ by faith. You really are perfectly righteous in Christ as to your standing before God. And you could not be more righteous or more acceptable to God than you are now and you were the moment you believed. According to the psalm, to the psalms, which bear this out. This is our only hope. It's in Christ. You read the 24th Psalm. It's asking who can enter into glory. Psalm 24, 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. If you're going to enter into eternal glory, this is what it takes. Clean hands, hands that have never been defiled by sinful action. You've never done a sinful act in your entire life. A pure heart, a heart that's never been tainted by the least hint of sin. That's what you need to enter into eternal glory. 
And if that hinges on us, if, if we have to meet those requirements, not one human being ever of Adam's fallen race will ever enter into the gates of glory. Who is this talking about? With clean hands and a pure heart, who is worthy to enter the gates? And for whom they cry, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. This pure-hearted, clean-handed one of the 24th Psalm, who may enter into the hill of the Lord, is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. Because of his incarnation, his sinless life, his death and his resurrection, his ascension and his session in our place, when he enters into those gates, we enter in with and in him because we are in Christ. And God receives us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ. It's kind of like one time when we were in Oklahoma ministering among the tribes there. There was a federal Indian boarding school, Riverside Indian School is the name of it, in Anadarko. And I wanted to go in there and preach the gospel. They had 500 students from 50 tribes from across the nation. So I had some friends from Cherokee country. They were from Mulberry Tree Baptist Church, and they had what they called a brotherhood there among uh, the men in the church, and they would go and go into schools like this and distribute Bibles and things of that nature, and they're going to let me preach. So I got to the school early, and there was the guard gate. This is still under the BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs. It's federal. There's a BIA command post there. It looks like a massive nuke bunker. There they had the big guard gate. I drove up. I told them... Uh, I'm here, you know, with Bud Grigsby and the Mulberry Tree Baptist Church. He looked on the list. He says, I'm sorry, there's no, you know, I have to have an inside contact that gives permission and your name is not on this list. He would not let me through the gate. I had to drive to the side parking lot and sit there for a while. I couldn't get in. There was no getting in. There was no access for me. Had no way to get in. But then here came that Mulberry Tree church van and Bud Grigsby and all of those men from the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. And when they came driving up, they opened the door. I got in the van with them. We went up to the guard gate. He asked him for his credentials. He said, yeah, I'm Bud Grigsby. He said, okay, yeah, here's your name. We're expecting you. They opened the gate. They let him right in. And there I was inside that van looking at the guard that had just booted me out, you know. And as we went through that gate, I had the overwhelming feeling and realization that I'm entering in not because of anything I am or anything I've done, but only because of who Bud Grigsby is. I'm entering in, in and by Bud Grigsby. Well, dear friend, at that last day, when the wicked are cast into everlasting fire, and we who are in Christ enter into everlasting glory. It will be only in, through, and by Jesus Christ. And we will forever have this realization. We're not here 
Because of any of our own worthiness, we have none. We deserve nothing but to be kicked out like the rest. But we're entering in in him and his righteousness alone. Now, dear sinner today, just like I was shut out of those gates, you're shut out of the kingdom of God right now. You may be in a godly Christian home. You may attend the worship of God. And this is great. This is wonderful. You hear the message of God. This is a glorious privilege that you have. But you're a million miles from God. God is just as much your enemy because of your sins as He's the enemy of Satan Himself. You're on Satan's side against God and His Christ. Your life is a continually a continual mockery and assault against the holiness of God. It's a continual mocking and rejecting of the pure and perfect offering of Christ upon the cross as if you don't need Him, as if you can do fine on your own. Do you not see the, you not see the wicked plight that you're in? Do you not see how that on the last day you're going to be shut out? You cannot enter glory. You are not worthy, just like the rest of us. All your sins will be exposed. Heaven and earth will flee away. God will open the books and you'll be judged out of the books. Every word, every thought, every deed, every action, your entire life is recorded by the tribunals of heaven and God will bring you to account for every wicked work, everything done in secret. And you will stand, as Scripture tells us, naked and exposed before the eyes of Him who sees all things. And you will hear that awful pronouncement, Depart from me, you cursed Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, into everlasting fire. And there will be weeping and wailing of teeth. And Jesus said, these shall go away into everlasting punishment. You will be shut out. You will not enter into glory. And you're on your way right now. You're on your way right now to this eternal condemnation. But oh, friend, the hope of the gospel is that just as freely... Just as freely as they opened the door and I stepped in that van, I didn't have to pay money. I didn't have to do any works. They invited me in. I stepped in. It wasn't anything to do with who I was. It was all to do with who Bud Grigsby was, that I entered into that premises. Friend, it's nothing about who you are or what you've done. It's all about who Jesus Christ is, what He has done, His perfect life. His life on behalf of guilty sinners like you. His death to pay for your sins if you believe upon Him. His resurrection to deliver you from physical and spiritual death and for your justification that you may be pronounced with His righteousness and it be credited to your account. Oh, what hope, what free hope. You may say, well, I'll wait till, I'll wait till I'm doing better. I'll wait till I break this bad habit or that bad habit. No, come to Him just exactly like you are right now in your sins and with your sins. This is the gospel invitation. And he will receive you unto himself. And he invites you, come to me. He says, he that comes to me, I will in no wise, I will never cast out. The moment you trust in him, you find that all the work has already been done. Christ has already done it all. And oh, what peace. Oh, what joy to know that you're reconciled to God. You have access to God through Jesus Christ. You are brought into peaceful relationship with God. You are right with God. 
in Christ. And you can have boldness and confidence that on that judgment day, when you stand before that great throne, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to terrify you because God receives you. He counts you in Christ. And he counts you as worthy as Christ to enter in as if you lived Christ's perfect life, as if you perfectly obeyed because you are in him who did this for you. Oh, come to him this day, believe upon him. Dear believer today, I hope this reminds you of the great status that you have in Christ, this positional righteousness that cannot change. As unworthy as we are, this cannot change. And I encourage you that whatever psalm you come to, belt it out and sing it with all your heart. Because in Christ, all the psalms are yours. In Christ, you are reckoned among the righteous. You'll find all kinds of wonderful promises for the righteous in the psalms. That are only for the righteous. And even on your worst day as a Christian, that promise is for you because in Christ you're reckoned among the righteous and you are righteous in his sight. And also, not only is there the benefit of justification, there's the benefit of sanctification. This Christ has given you his spirit to enable you to die to sin and to live unto righteousness. God is conforming you more and more unto the righteousness of Christ in your practical everyday life. Yes, it's an up and down roller coaster of sanctification. And yes, we'll never be completed in this life. But God in Christ is doing this work in you. You're reckoned among the righteous. And I encourage you to remember this. Repent zealously of sin and seek by the help of his spirit to live unto righteousness. Sometimes you can be discouraged as a Christian. And you might be like me, you have to ask your spouse in all these years that we've been married. You know, sometimes I think I've made some progress in sanctification, but other times I wonder, have I even ever left the starting line? You have to ask your Christian spouse, can you see any progress in my sanctification? Am I any more like Christ than I was 10 years ago? Have I even taken one baby step? Sanctification can be so slow and so discouraging sometimes. We want to be like Christ and we're so unlike Him. But oh dear saint, I remind you of the hope that's yours in Him because you're counted righteous in Him. There is coming a day when you will be glorified and your sanctification finally will be perfected just as perfectly as your justification is now. And you really will be sinlessly perfect, sinlessly righteous, as righteous as Jesus Christ is in every thought, word, and deed, action, and attitude forever and ever. And you will not have the ability to sin. And with unhindered and unfettered joy, you will behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the Psalms remind us of this. And today, in this, we give glory to God, our triune God, whose glory is revealed to us in the Psalms. Glory to the Father, the God who justifies. Glory to the Son, the one by whom we're justified. And glory to the Holy Spirit, 
the one who brings home to us all the finished work of Christ, as it was in the beginning and is now and ever shall be unto the ages of ages. Amen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we confess that your love and grace to us and all that you have given us in Christ is, is beyond our full comprehension. It's beyond our ability to adequately speak or communicate. But we pray that by the grace of your Spirit, you would cause us to know more of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ and to be transformed and to be changed more into the image of Christ as a result of it. And we ask you for the salvation of our dear loved ones who are yet in their sins. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.